You're about to hear a preview of Partially Examined Life supporter exclusive content. To learn how to get the whole thing, check out partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. It's the Partially Examined Life, episode 331, part three. It's just me and Wes. Hey, Wes. Hey, Mark. However, we're not going to close read. This, this is just too, too long. But we did want to cover in more detail the stages of despair. How the very non-serious, very silly asthete can depress his way to the place where he's ready to make the choice. And I say he, he's referring to a he here. Is there any gender dynamic stuff? Is there a feminist version of Kierkegaard I don't know about? Yeah, the word he is a neuter word. Yes, I guess he does give some of his examples. Is like the girl that has a first love. So how far back did you want to go, Wes, to talk about this in more detail? About 184 when he started to bring up Nero or even earlier than that? Well, let's just recap a little bit earlier to join us up with the previous episodes. I think we had ended by outlining some of the stages of the aesthetic. And I had said there were four stages. I actually think there might be more, but I'll give us the four main stages. What the stages all have in common is the aesthete posits this external condition as the thing that's required for meaning of life. It's is their life view. So the way he'll put it, the essential quality is that the spirit is not qualified as spirit, but it's immediately qualified. So in other words, it could be something like wealth or honor or even health or falling in love. Those could all be things that the aesthete is focused on as the most important things. That's what he calls the first stage, 183. The second stage is something that is seemingly within the self, talents, but... Again, those are, in a way, external conditions. They're things that we don't have any actual control over. And making them the meaning of life, as opposed to making our own freedom the meaning, is a perilous project. Stage three is what he calls living for desire. And this is where we start to get into 183, 184. So living to maximize the satisfaction of one's desires, which ideally would take unlimited resources, like the kind of resources that an emperor would have. Unlimited wealth, unlimited power, then you can have whatever you want. On 184, he says that people dabble in this idea, they fantasize about it, they don't have the power and wealth to actually make it happen, but they have this idea that if only they did all have all those resources, then they would be happy. And Nero, as this omnipotent, all-powerful person, this is the case study to refute this idea. And he's going to accuse the aesthete, accuse A in particular, Even though he's not Nero in the literal sense, he's kind of a Nero in the spiritual sense. And so that's our point of departure on 184. Just to back up just a little bit to the enjoying life, you might see enjoying life. 183. Right. So you might think that that is the purpose of life is to enjoy it while it's here. It's a finite resource. In fact, that seems to be like it's facing some sort of existential challenge. I'm I'm aware of my own death. I'm just going to enjoy life. But the way Kierkegaard interprets that is live for your desire. But desire is a multiplicity, right? You have a lot of desires, so they're going to pull you in all directions. So making that the basis of your personality means your personality is going to be fragmented. It's going to be at war with itself. I recall Nietzsche saying, actually, that is the challenge is parts of, he'll call them even virtues, right? That they're going to be fighting each other. And that's sort of what it is to be human, is to manage your various tendencies and desires that are pulling you in different directions. So 
I guess the question is, can one manage them without going so far as Kierkegaard wants us to go, which is not quite to throw them all away. He's not a stoic, but to somehow transfigure yourself so that you are not counting those desires as part of the self at all, that you are a freely choosing being. Yes, you have desires. That's part of your facticity, but you are not those desires. Yeah, I don't know. You know, he does talk about the possibility of refinement a little bit above. And his claim is that even if you refine desire, that's part of what the aesthetic is, right? The aesthetic is this twofold, at mm-hmm. least, thing on the most base level, just following one's impulses and desires, or the higher level, channeling that into artistic activity and enjoyment. And actually, this word refinement actually comes a little bit below. So he's talking about the person who. You know, he'll say it breaks you up into multiplicity unless you really had this thing that you really loved since childhood. Like if you were all into fishing or hunting or keeping horses or whatever, then maybe you could see that as more unified. Regardless, he says, in the desire itself, top of 184, the individual is immediate. Again, immediate, he's associating with the non-conceptual immediate experience in that sense, like sensory experience and unreflective experience. The individual is immediate and however refined and sophisticated, however artfully devised it is, and I think this is referring to the arts, the individual is still in it as immediate in the enjoyment he is in the moment. And however multiple he is in this respect, he nevertheless is continually immediate because he is in the moment. And then he says this very sarcastic thing to satisfy one's desires, a very distinguished appointment in life. And thank God one rarely sees it put into practice. So this whole idea of distinguishment is getting us into the regality of it, the sense and the sense of omnipotence involved in this. And on a practical level, the power required to actually execute. Like we can all say, oh, I'm going to enjoy my life to the max because it's short. But if we really believe that, we would have to, our project would be to acquire as much wealth and power as possible to see that put into practice. Can we... Try to clear up a terminological thing. So just the sentence right before you started reading there, very bottom of 183 going to 184. Insofar as this life view splits up into a multiplicity, right? You have multiple desires. Easy to see that is within the sphere of reflection. Yet this reflection is always only a finite reflection and the person remains in his immediacy. So I'm a little unclear. Like I get the immediacy part and I get how it can be a reflective person, but what is it to be a finite reflection as opposed to what he wants? Yeah, I think the idea might be, so things get split into a multiplicity. In a sense, they require mediation because you have to bring all the multiple things under one concept or one idea. So even though you may be split up as a person, it's not like you have multiple personalities or you're completely psychotic. It requires some sort of mediation, some sort of reflectiveness, some sort of unifying activity So I may have a scheme, you know, I may have a order of priorities with my desires. You know, if I have multiple desires, I may think that eating a burrito is at a lower level of my priorities than going to see an opera. I may distinguish higher and lower desires and have a whole scheme of how all of that fits into my life. But that sort of mediation, and you could call it reflection, that sort of self-consciousness about the role that desire plays in my life, that sort of refinement doesn't actually take me away from the fact that in the end, what I am doing is I am simply trying to put myself into the moment in one way or another. 
and the type of, you know, whatever it is that's required for a higher level of reflection, infinite reflection as opposed to finite reflection, that doesn't qualify. Well, let's go on to 185. So this at the very top sounded exactly like Camus to me. One of, it's one of your imperial desires, right? He's describing the, he's already introduced Nero, you know, the person of insatiable desire, which by extension, it's going to be, you know, once you've been this for a while, then you're not only a person of insatiable desire, but you've seen the emptiness of desire. You've, you've seen it all. And so he says, uh, what, it is one of your imperial desires never to step aside for any thought, never to be terrified by it. For this one does not need an imperial guard, nor gold or silver, nor all the treasure of the world. One can do this all by oneself and decide privately is not thereby less terrible, but is more prudent. So right. you're tough. You will face any truth. In that sense, you're not in your immediacy. You're very open. Tell me the hard truths. I can handle the hard truths. And one of those is going to be that, yeah, you're actually going to discover that all desire is ultimately empty. You're going to reach this sort of stoic conclusion and you're not going to flinch at such a thing. So what he's trying to do now, because obviously A does have a lot of resources, but he's not literally a Nero in his power and wealth. And also he is not someone who's simply running around trying to satisfy every sensual desire. He's thinking of himself more of as an artist. And Kierkegaard wants to say, sure, but you're still kind of an inner Nero. And now that's the track we're on starting here. Psychologically, you're basically a Nero. I'm an, and I'm going to tell you why. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.